All right, well, we are finishing up Genesis this morning, believe it or not. I can't believe it. Oh, I need my notes. They're over here. I double-checked, and we did start in January of 2022 when we started going through Genesis. So we've been in a year and a half. And I'm glad that for some of you, it didn't feel like a year and a half. (laughs) And for those of you that felt like it's been longer, just be quiet. But we are going to be wrapping it up this morning. The book of beginnings is coming to an end. The story isn't over, obviously, right? God's work continues. We, you know, you pick up in the book of Exodus some 400 years later with Moses. The book of Genesis starts, a year and a half ago, we started with creation, the beginning of all things, the beginning of everything. And it ends today, it ends with death. The death of Jacob and then the death of Joseph. So, and I wish I had more time to put together snazzy little slideshows for you. Uh, but let's go over a timeline really quick, just so you can see, because, you know, one of the things, you know, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are considered the most controversial chapters, almost of the entire Bible, because of what it deals with, with creation and uh, with flood and, 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 you know, the Tower of Babel and these things. And one of the things that people will try to tell you about the Bible is, is that, well, you know, there really wasn't written records and they had to pass things down orally. And, and how could the story of Adam get to Abraham? And, and, and it's actually very simple. It's actually very simple. When you go through the timelines, when you look at the dates, when you look at who was alive when, other, you know, when they were alive, you can see that really you don't have a list of 50 people that the history had to be passed down toward to, even though we've covered the book of Genesis from beginning to end covers somewhere just over 2,300 years, around 2,309 years, okay? 2,309 years. You've just, last year and a half, we've gone over 2,309 years of history. But in that, it's only a handful of people. Right? So Adam lived to be 930 years old. Okay, the first man created. Adam lived to be 930 years old. Lamech, who was his sixth great grandson, and who was the father of Noah, was born when Adam was 874 years old. Right? So Lamech himself could have heard everything that had been told to Adam from God by Adam directly, okay? Lamech lived to be 777 years old. Now, Noah was born when Lamech was 182 years old. So his dad was 182 when Noah was born. The flood happened 656 years after creation, give or take. I mean, you want to go check the records. You'll be able to one day. You can see how close we are, right? And Noah, of course, at that time, Noah was 600 years old. Noah lived to be 950 years old. Now, Noah uh, was 760 years old when Terah, who was the father of Abraham, was born. And he was 890 years old when Abraham was born, which means that Adam could have told Noah's father, 
who told Noah, who told Abraham's father, or even Abraham himself. All the stories that passed down through the Bible. Right Now, Shem, who was the son of Noah, was 390 years old when Abraham was born. He was 490 years old when Isaac was born. So even if Noah didn't pass it on, his son Shem could have. He could have told it directly to Isaac. Well, Shem lived to be 600 years old. Abraham is the 18th great-grandson of Adam. He's the ninth great-grandson of Noah. And Abraham was, of course, 100 when Isaac was born. Abraham was 160 when Jacob was born. You don't think of Abraham being alive when Jacob was born, but he was. They just, they, they often put the deaths before the next people that they're going to talk about chronologically in the story, even though he didn't actually die until later, right? Abraham died, of course, at 175. So Isaac was 60 when Jacob was born. He was 151 when his grandson Joseph was born. And he was 168 when Joseph was sold into slavery. We mentioned this when we started talking about Joseph for the fact that even though they talked about Isaac's death beforehand, Isaac was actually alive when Joseph was 17 and sold into slavery. And Isaac died at 180 years old, which was a year before Joseph became second command in Egypt. So you have a very small line of people of which God's creation And all the miracles that God did at the beginning that have been passed on down through Adam made them all the way to Joseph. Made it all the way to Moses, even 400 years later. It's not a long line. It's not a long list of people. Like I said, from creation to the death of Joseph, 2,309 years, which leaves it somewhere around 1,693 B.C. And most of that, of course, was in the first 11 chapters of the book. Because you cover over 23, you co- well, you cover most of those years in the first 11 chapters. From the birth of Abraham, which is roughly Genesis chapter 11, to the death of Joseph, Joseph at the end of Genesis, it's only 361 years. So the first 11 chapters r- roughly cover two, almost 2,000 years of history. And the last of the book of Genesis only covers a small section of time. So, Genesis, the book that we've been going over for the last year and a half, like I said, covers over 2,300 years of history. You know that the Old Testament in whole, right, from Genesis to what's the last book in the Old Testament? Malachi or what is it? Malachi, right? That's only roughly 4,000 years of history. Okay, probably a little more. Just a little more. I count actually like 4,002 or something like that. 2,300 of that was just in the book of Genesis. That means the book of Genesis covers roughly 57.6% of all Old Testament history, just in one book. I don't know. These are things I think of. These are things that rattle around in my brain. You might not ever think of these things, but I just, this is why Genesis to me is a very important book. If you didn't have the rest of the Old Testament, you could teach just from the book of Genesis, and teach Jesus. Because he's in here. The picture of Jesus that you see in Joseph, the picture of God's grace, his mercy, salvation by faith, it's all in the book of Genesis. It's all there. It's a very important book. And it's very important to history. So this morning we're going to wrap it up. 
right? Jacob, the last of the great patriarchs, who we uh, met back in Genesis 25. He's going to pass away. First Jacob and then Joseph. But in between those two events is a pretty important message for all of us. A, a pretty important message that sums up the entire book of Genesis and also, quite frankly, the Bible and also, quite frankly, your walk with Christ. That we can apply. We should apply. We should remember daily. So I'm going to read Genesis starting at chapter 49, 29. Actually, I'll back up to 28 just for fun. And then read through chapter 50. It says, all these are the 12 tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each of them with the blessing suitable to him. And then he commanded them and said to them, I am to be gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field at Machpelah to the east of Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with, with the field from Ephron, the Hittite, to possess as a burying place. And there they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there <coughs> I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is in it were bought from the Hittites. When Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. And then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants and the physicians to embalm his father. And so the physicians embalmed Israel and 40 days were required for it. For that is how many are required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70 days. And when the days of weeping for him were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh saying, if now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the ears of Pharaoh saying, my father made me swear saying, I am about to die in my tomb that I hewed out for myself in the land of Canaan. There shall you bury me. Now, therefore, let me please go up and bury my father, and then I will return. And Pharaoh answered, Go up, bury your father as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went all the servants of Pharaoh, of the elders of his household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the household of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's household. Only their children, their flocks, and their herds were left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company. You can imagine how large of a group of people that just left Egypt to go bury Jacob. And when they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and grievous lamentation, and he made a mourning for his father seven days. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning on the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning by the Egyptians. Therefore, the place was named Abel Mizraim. It is beyond the Jordan. Thus his sons did for him as he had commanded them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah to the east of Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite to possess as a burying place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. Verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph saying, your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sins because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear for am I in the place of God? 
As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph remained in Egypt, he and his father's house. Joseph lived 110 years. And Joseph saw Ephraim's children of the third generation. The children also of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were counted as Joseph's own. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word, and I pray, Lord, that you just speak this to us. I pray, Lord, that uh, your spirit speak your words this morning, Lord, and you speak them to our heart and draw us closer to you for the message that you have for us. The message of not fearing, the message of understanding that you redeem all things, and the hope that's found in that, and the comfort that's found in those words. We thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. If you remember back in chapter 49, I think it was chapter 49. No, it wasn't 49. It was... 46, sorry. If you remember back in chapter 46 when Jacob was heading out to Egypt to be reunited with his son Joseph. He stopped at Beersheba and he sought out God. And this is what God told him. He said in verse 3 of chapter 46, he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and I will also bring you up again and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. That was a promise from God to Jacob. And that promise gave Jacob hope. He was obviously a little afraid to head on down into Egypt, but God comforted him with those words. And what, and what God told him was really simple. He says, I'm going to take you down there. And while you're down there, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I will bring you up again, which means I will bring you home. And Joseph's hand shall close your eyes, which means you're going to see Joseph, and Joseph will be with you when you pass. And that was comforting to Jacob. He knew that God was going to be with him, that God would be with him even in death. God will fulfill it. And God will fulfill that promise to Jacob in full. But for now, what he's fulfilling is that he's going to bring Jacob back to the land of Canaan, and Joseph will close his eyes just as God said. Jacob is 147 years old now, right? He's lived 17 years in the land of Egypt. And after blessing Joseph and Joseph's sons and then blessing all the rest of his sons, the future 12 tribes of Israel, he gave his sons his burial instructions. And then it says at the end of chapter 49, verse 33, when Jacob finished commanding his sons, he drew up his feet into the bed and breathed his last and was gathered to his people. The idea of being gathered to your people is more of a spiritual gathering than the physical. It's not just saying he's buried with his family. It means that his soul went to be with his people 
which is with God. It is said that there's only three basic attitudes towards death. See where you fit in these three basic attitudes. One comes from the ancient Greeks, which was that they had a, a death-accepting view, which means they, they just accepted it. Death is something that's going to happen. There's nothing you can do about it. Nothing happens really after. We just accept it. We're all going to die. And then there's the death-denying approach, which one could argue is pretty much the view of most people in the world today. They deny death in the sense that they're trying to uh, figure out how to prolong their life as long as they can, no matter what kind of weird medical things they're doing or cryogenically or however it is. They, they want to live forever, and they're going to deny death you know, because they got the money to do it, right? Somehow. You can't, but... And then you have the biblical approach to death, which is often referred to as the death-defying attitude. In Christ, we defy death. Right? So I wonder, do you have that approach to death, uh, that attitude? Do you defy it? Or do you just accept it? Or you deny it? Right? How do we in Christ have a death-defying approach? Well, as Jesus says in John 11, everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. That's one reason. We have eternal life through Christ, reason, Christ Jesus. This is how we defy death. Romans 6 tells us that death has no dominion over Jesus. Right? And as he died and he rose again. And therefore we who have been united with him in death, which we have when we give our lives to Christ Jesus, right, shall be united with him in the resurrection. So therefore death has no dominion over us. We defy death. Right? The perishable becomes imperishable. The mortal becomes immortal. Right? Spurgeon has a quote about Jacob here in Genesis chapter 49. And he says that he, Jacob was immortal until his work was done. Right? So long as God had another sentence to speak by him, or you could even say through him, death could not paralyze his tongue. That's a death-defying attitude. Understanding that God has work to do through you, and as long as God has that work to do through you, he's not going to call you home until your work is done. It's a death-defying attitude. But even when he calls you home, even when that time passes, when God says, okay, you've done exactly what I've asked. Well done, good and faithful servant. Right? You know, even when that time comes, we can say, oh, death, where is thy sting? Right? Because for those in Christ, once you breathe your last, assuming the rapture hasn't happened, Right? If this happens before the rapture, once you breathe your last, at the point where you're gathered unto your people, and your physical body is then separated from your soul, it's not an accident, by the way. It's an appointment. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Right? Your life doesn't end. You've just gone from glory to glory. Timothy Keller, who passed away back in May, regardless of what you might think about what he taught or his theology, Timothy Keller said right before he died, it's a very good quote, I don't know if you've heard it, 
Literally, his, his last words, according to his family, was this. There is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. Because he knew he wasn't dying. He was just going from glory to glory. So as Christians, we need to have that death-defying attitude. We can't be afraid of it. We can't deny it. We don't just accept it in that sense. No, we know that we have eternal life through Christ Jesus. So Jacob has passed. And Joseph commands his servants to embalm his father. Forty days required for embalming, just in case you wanted to know if you're ever going to be embalmed. Maybe it's quicker now. I don't know the process. And then they went for Israel for 70 days, which just shows the uh, respect that Joseph had and how loved Jacob was. That all of Egypt mourned for the loss of Jacob for 70 days. And after that time of mourning was through, Joseph goes to the Pharaoh and he says, listen, I made my father a promise. He wants to be buried back in the family plot in the land of Canaan. We need to take him there. And the Pharaoh says, yes, absolutely go. Take whatever you need and whoever you need and take your father and do what he asks you to do. So they do, right? They get all the chariots and the horsemen and the big crowd. I can't imagine how big it was. And they go, probably the land of Canaan thought they were being invaded I mean, it was probably that large of a crowd. Egypt's invading us. It's an army or something. No, it was just coming back to bury Jacob. And they had this great and sorrowful lamentation, this great mourning period, seven days of mourning at the threshing floor of Atad. And the threshing floor of Atad is between the Jordan and the River Jordan and, and Jericho. It's there in, in the land of Canaan. And when the Canaanites saw this seven-day mourning period and how great it was and everything that was going on, they renamed that threshing floor of Atad. They renamed it Abel Mizraim, meaning the meadow of Egypt. Because Mizraim is just another name for Egypt and, and Abel just means meadow. So they just renamed it the meadow of Egypt because of how many people were there and how many people were mourning for Jacob. And afterwards, when, when that seven days were over, Joseph returns to Egypt with all his brothers and everybody who had gone with him to bury his father. Well, then later in the chapter, in verse 22, we see Joseph passes. This would be 53 years later, actually. Because again, they truncate everything down really quick. But Joseph lived to be 110, so this is roughly another 53 years later, Joseph passes. And he tells his brothers, I'm about to die. But he gives his brothers this promise before he dies, says that God will bring them out of Egypt. God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here, it says. His bones. Now there's no mention here about the mourning process or the, it says that he was embalmed just like Jacob, but there's no mention about how many days is, how long Egypt mourned for Joseph or anything like that. But you can imagine it was just as long as it was for Jacob, if not longer, considering the authority that Joseph had in Egypt. But when we look at verse 25, when Joseph says, God will surely visit you and you shall carry up my bones from here. And then you look at Hebrews 11.22, which is why Joseph, you know, the reason why Joseph's in the hall of faith, which says, by faith, Joseph, 
when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones, it lets us know a couple of things. One, Joseph was not buried in the ground. He was put in a coffin, as it says, or a sarcophagus, if you will. Here's a picture of some ruins of a, a sarcophagus. And this sarcophagus was found in the land of Canaan, but it, it was an Egyptian sarcophagus, but they didn't contain Egyptian uh, bones or Egyptians. These were all buried in the land of Canaan. These were all Canaanites that they found these sarcophaguses of people who served probably in royal positions in Egypt. They don't know if that's Joseph's sarcophagus or not. And I would say it probably isn't. And the reason is, is because they carried his bones into the land of Canaan. It doesn't say that they necessarily carried his coffin. I'm just being picky, but it doesn't say that. They embalmed him, but 400 years later when they took him out of Egypt, they could just carry his bones out. And he wasn't buried in the ground, so they didn't have to, uh, you know, dig him up when they went to leave, there was a reason why his coffin was laid out above ground in a tomb where everyone could see the entire time. And that was because of the promise that Joseph told his brothers, which had been passed down. It says it was by faith that Joseph, when he was dying, gave them that promise that God was going to come down to Egypt and take them out and that they would carry his bones out. It was by faith, it says, that Joseph did that. It was by faith because Joseph trusted God's promise that God would do what he said he would do. It was by faith because Joseph knew where God's people belonged, which wasn't in Egypt. It was in the land of Canaan. It was by faith because Joseph looked to the future, right? When he gives them, when he mentions the departure of the children of Israel, he doesn't know when that's going to happen. He doesn't know that that's going to be 400 years later, but he knew it was going to be after his death. So he's looking to the future. So, and you have no control over what happens in the future once you die, right? He's not going to come back from the dead and be like, okay, guys, this is how it's, you know, and now you're not doing things correctly. We need to line, you know, he's not controlling anything. He's dead. It was by faith because it proclaimed God's faithfulness, 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 even through a dead person's bones. He says, you will carry my bones out of here. So Joseph's final words to his brother before he passes are a testimony of this faith. Like I said, he wouldn't see it come to pass, but he trusted the Lord. It was by faith. And 400 years later, Moses would carry his bones out of Egypt. Exodus chapter 13, verse 19, right? Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. I'm going to pay, pay attention to that phrase. Carry up my bones with you from here. I'm going to take a little diversion. This is kind of fun. I found it fun, maybe. Maybe you'll be like, oh, come on. You go to Luke. I'm not going to, I'm not trying to, I'm not going to do a teaching on this entire story. This is the rich man and Lazarus. It's in Luke chapter 16. And I just want to say something really quick concerning Jesus teaching, because this is Jesus teaching. And if you haven't thought about this, I'm going to tell you this so you can think about it. When Jesus teaches from a parable, he would often say without really almost every time. This is a parable, right? 
for lack of better words, he would say, this is a parable. I am teaching you a parable, right? This story here, the rich man and Lazarus, is not a parable. It's not a parable. This is an actual story. This is true. Jesus is actually passing on insight about life after death. All right? And he's talking about Abraham's bosom and the rich man and Lazarus, where they both die. Here's the verse I want you to pay attention to. Which verse is it? 22, right? So the rich man dies and the poor man dies. Yeah, chapter 16 of Luke and verse 22. And it says that the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and he was just buried. The poor man who went to Abraham's side, now just so you know how it worked. First, the Bible teaches that heaven and hell are real places. Okay? And if you want, if you want a proof of that, read this story. Now, this is pre-death and resurrection. Understand that. Before the death and the resurrection of Christ, often the word Sheol was used to describe the realm of the dead. This is what Jesus is describing here. The realm of the dead. There are two sections to the realm of the dead. One section is, as Jesus refers to it here, is Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom. Or also, some would refer to it as paradise. This was a place of comfort and rest. The poor man went to that place. He went to the place of comfort and rest. Now between the place of comfort and rest was a huge chasm, like think the Grand Canyon or something or greater. And on the other side was a place of torment, eternal torment. So Hades, okay? Or if you want, you can call it hell. The rich man went there. The rich man was buried and went to hell. The poor man died and was carried by angels into a place of peace and rest and comfort at Abraham's side. It's carried. Right? Joseph's bones are going to be carried into the promised land. He wasn't buried. His bones will be carried. I'm, again, I'm not teaching on the rich man and Lazarus, so if you want to know more about that, you can, you can follow that up. That's a theological rabbit trail we're not going to hop down this morning. But who is going to carry Joseph's bones into the land of promise? Because it's not going to be Moses. Moses took Joseph's bones out of Egypt. But if you remember... Moses never crossed the Jordan. He wasn't allowed to. So it's not Moses. Who was it? It's Joshua. Joshua will carry Joseph's bones into the promised land, into the land of Canaan. Right? Joshua 24, 32. 
As for the bones of Joseph, which the people of Israel brought up from Egypt, they buried them at Shechem in the piece of land that Jacob bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of money. It became an inheritance of the descendants of Joseph. So Joseph is carried into the promised land by Joshua. Joshua in the Hebrew is what? Yahushua, Yahushua, Yeshua, which is the Hebrew name for Jesus. There's a picture for you. Joseph's bones are carried into the land of promise by Yeshua. That's a picture for you. Because we are going to be carried to be with the Father and with Jesus. And who's going to carry us? Jesus himself. How's he going to do that? With a trumpet blast. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. That word for caught up, which in the Greek is harpazo, and in the Latin is rapturo, which is where we get the word rapture, that word means to carry off. Jesus is going to carry us into the Father's house by trumpet call, right? Whether our physical bodies are in the grave or we're still walking around sipping a mocha, when he blasts that trumpet, he's going to carry us to him. Something to think of. Interesting picture that we see here in Genesis. Now, between those two events, as we finish up the book of Genesis, it's an interesting exchange between Joseph and his brothers that sums up the whole of Genesis. And quite frankly, you could say, sums up the Bible. And is applicable to your life. And is something you should remember daily. So we go to verse 15. After Jacob passes, Joseph's brothers are worried. And they're worried because they think now that father has passed, Joseph it's going to bring retribution down on them now that father's not here to stop it. Right? right. The, the, they're worried that Joseph's going to take revenge now that their father has passed. Right? He's going to at least fire from heaven and, and consume us now that dad's out of the way and can't stop it. Right? So they send a message to remind Joseph that, that the father told him he's supposed to forgive us. Please. And then they came and they bowed down to him. They presented themselves to them, to him as servants. And now from, and from a human perspective, Joseph had the right and the ability to bring such retribution among his brothers if he wanted to. Absolutely. I mean, he was second command in all of Egypt. I mean, as soon as he buried his father and they came home to Egypt, he could have dismissed his brothers faster than, you know, they could have been buried in the land of Goshen and that would have been it. But, but Joseph lays it out for him when they bring this up to him. And the first thing that he tells them is, am I in the place of God? Basically what he says is, I know God and I know I am not God. So that's not my place to do that. It's not my place. 
See, Joseph had already forgiven them. He forgave them long before that. We talked about this. He forgave them long before they came into Egypt. God had, Joseph had already dealt with that. He had already forgiven them. But they were still struggling all these years later. Right? He, he was, they were gone for 22 years. And then 17 years after they come down to Egypt. And here they are. Was that 39? 39 years of dealing with guilt and shame over the, what they did to their brother. And they still can't accept his forgiveness. They can't accept it. They're struggling with it. They don't believe they were forgiven. They believe it's just all games. And now that the father's out of the way, Joseph's going to kill him. Why do we struggle? Why do we struggle with forgiveness? What's your struggle with forgiveness? Why do we doubt our salvation? Because doubting your salvation is struggling with forgiveness. How many Christians do you know that go, I, I know I struggle with my salvation. I'm not sure that I'm saved. Am I saved? Is there something I can do to... There, you know, yeah, there is. How, how about you read God's word right here? You're struggling with your salvation. You're, you're struggling with forgiveness. You want a word from God that will give you an assurance so you don't struggle with that anymore, that you will be, that you'll be built right, on that foundation that's not going to shake so that you won't be tossed back and forth anymore. You want that assurance from God's word? Here it is. Have you read this lately? Because if you haven't, maybe this is why you're struggling. Right? Maybe this is why you're struggling. Because if we struggle, we struggle with accepting God's word. Guess what? We're going to struggle with accepting God's love. The brothers were struggling with accepting Joseph's word. So they, they couldn't accept his love. Because they didn't trust his word. If we don't trust God's word, we can't trust God's love, right? When we go around and we start asking questions, just like that, you know, that song we were singing about nobody, right? We say, well, God can't love me. I'm, you know, I'm a nobody. How can I become a somebody so that God will love me? We turn it around instead of understanding that God takes a nobody and turns him into somebody through Christ. We're basing our identity of who we are on worldly standards and not on godly standards and not through his word that shows who we are in Christ Jesus. God doesn't love a wretch like me. Well, actually God does. He does, absolutely. And he proved that on the cross. Right? We take the word of man over the word of God and, and man says, well, you gotta earn it. You gotta work it off. You gotta do this, you gotta do A, B, and C. Right? Yet God says, well, forgiveness is a gift. Our salvation, it's a gift, and it's through his son Jesus. The thing is, is you just have to accept it by faith. And if you don't want to accept it, then that's a different story. Jesus, he paid the price for your sin. He went to the cross in your place. He defeated death so that you could have eternal life through him. Christ died to set you free. He who the Son sets free is free indeed. Where the Spirit is, there is freedom. Micah 7.19 says, He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. He will cast all, out all our sins into the depths of the sea. It says, When Joseph spoke to them and said, Do not fear, am I God? Am I in the place of God that I can do this type of thing? I understand that you did evil towards me, but God used it for good. Don't worry, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of your children. I love you. You're forgiven. It says those words comforted them. But God's words are there for us too to do the same thing. If you're struggling with these ideas of forgiveness and, and your salvation, 
you need to get in God's word because God's word is there to comfort you concerning that, that exact thing, right? Do you believe that, that God's cast your sins into the depth of the sea if you were in Christ? Or do you think he's holding your sins against you for a retribution at a later date, right? I'm going to make him think I love them, but then later, ha ha, right? I mean, if we struggle with forgiveness, if we spend sleepless nights worrying about our salvation, maybe the problem is, one, we aren't in Christ. Or two, we still have sin that we refuse to surrender to God. If you're in Christ, then your salvation is secure. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. So don't listen to your own feelings on this matter. Spend more time in God's word, which, as it says was given to us who believe in the name of the Son of God that we will know that we have eternal life. Not that we will doubt that we have eternal life. Not that we will, you know, wonder about it and lose sleep over it and be agonized over that. Oh, do we have eternal life? Am I saved? Oh, no. He gave us his word. Those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God have given their life to Jesus. He has given us word so we will know. Know as in you absolutely are 100% sure that you are secure in the truth that you have eternal life through Christ Jesus. Do you know that? Do you know that? So Joseph said to him, he said, don't fear, right? He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. And that's the phrase that sums up the entire book of Genesis. That sums up the entire Bible, that really sends up your walk with Jesus. Whatever the world has done that is you look at as evil against you, God says he's meant it for good. He's going to be glorified in that somehow. You may not see it come to pass, but he will be, and you be glorified in it. He will redeem that. And you just have to have faith about it. Right? Joseph didn't romanticize the evil that his brothers did. He didn't downplay it. He was really plain with them. You meant it for evil. Right? Which was true. He was speaking to them. You know, he's speaking the truth in love right there at that point to his brothers. But there was a greater truth, which was God meant it for good, which is what his brothers needed to hear. You meant that for evil, but God redeemed it. God meant it for good. It's the same thing that Paul echoes in Romans 8, 28, right? And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. See, our lives are not in the hands of man. They're not even in our own hands. We, we really have very little control over things. Our lives are in the hands of God who works all things to his glory. And we can see this throughout the entire book of Genesis that we've been going through for the last year and a half, right? Rewind back to the beginning of the book of beginnings. Right, you have the fall of man. I mean, creation, the Garden of Eden, everything is perfect until it's not, right? And you have the fall of man because of Satan in the garden. And Adam and Eve are then expelled from the garden. And then they have kids and they're going out and being fruitful and multiplying and Cain murders Abel. But then that didn't stop God's work. But then you get to the flood and the heart of man was evil all the time and then you get the judgment and, and then after that you got the Tower of Babel and God has to scatter everybody but then you get to Abraham. 
who's brought out of a pagan nation to go into a land where he didn't know where it was, but God was going to show him. By faith, he did. He started following God. He was 75 years old at the time that he steps into the land of Canaan. And he's married, and he has Sarah. But then there's the whole, oops, sorry, you know, Hagar and Ishmael. Sorry, Lord, we got ahead of ourselves. We thought that's what you wanted. Of course, then you also have his nephew, Lot, who put his tent towards Sodom and Gomorrah. But hey, and God was bringing judgment down, but hey, he rescued Lot out of it. Right? And of course, then Isaac is born, and Isaac marries Rebecca, but Isaac's old, and later on he's old and blind. And it's affected the relationship with his sons and Jacob and Esau. There's all that line and deception and everything that we went over. And Esau sells his birthright for a bowl of soup. And Jacob deceives his father into thinking he's Esau. And then Jacob has to run for his life because Esau wants to kill him. And holy cow, it's a soap opera. But, but God redeemed it. And Jacob has to go live with his father-in-law, but his father-in-law is not a great guy too. And he deceives Jacob and ends up marrying both his daughters when he only really wanted to marry one. But what did we get from that? Twelve sons become the nation of Israel. God redeemed it. His sons aren't the greatest people. His daughters defiled. His sons kill all the men of Shechem. One of his other sons sleeps with his concubine. His favorite son sold into slavery. But God redeemed it. The guilt and the shame and the grief that affected the family in all those different ways for 22 years, right? But God blessed all that Joseph did. God sent Joseph ahead to prepare a way for Jacob and his sons to, to survive famine. So that they, and now he's going to use that time in Egypt to grow them into a nation. God redeemed it. All that was meant for evil, God meant for good. And that's really the Bible in a nutshell, right? Because the greatest sin ever committed by humankind brought the greatest blessing ever to humankind. That was Jesus on the cross, right? And we don't have bones or a mummy (laughs) embalmed in a coffin to remind us of this like they had in Egypt. But what do we have? We have the cross and an empty tomb. I saw this story this week. Because these things have, you know, are the lives and the stuff that we go through that sometimes we don't think about what God's doing or how he's, or, or what, but when something goes, you know, we have these little things that happen and then these big things that happen and we're like, oh man, why is all these things happening to me? But I saw this story this week. It was really more of a little story than a big story. It wasn't a great, you know, uh, fantastic, I mean, it's a fantastic story, but it wasn't huge and I didn't make the news. It was from Victor Marx, and if you don't know who Victor Marx is, you can look him up on your own. But he, speaking about child trafficking and stuff like that, is a person who works in that area rescuing children from child trafficking. He himself was raised uh, an abused kid in a family, and he has military background. If you've ever watched his videos on YouTube, he's a Christian. He teaches at many Calvary Chapel churches, uh, but he's not a pastor or anything like that. If you ever watch any of his YouTube videos, uh, he'll often do a display where he'll have two kids on stage point a gun at him, and you'll show them how fast he can disarm them because of his military training. It's quite impressive. I would just tell you never to point a gun at him. And he was recounting a story about just how, like a year and a half ago or so, he was, you know, during COVID thing, he still had to wear masks on planes and stuff like that. He was flying somewhere with his wife and they're, they're down in their seat, he's wearing a mask and his wife's wearing a mask and the uh, stewardess or whoever told him that he wasn't wearing his mask properly, even though he was wearing it just like she was and just like his wife was. And they weren't telling his wife that. 
Um, he said, I don't understand. You know, I'm wearing it exactly the same. I don't know what the problem is. So she went to the pilot, and the pilot came and escorted him off the plane. And he was wearing his mask exactly as the pilot was. The pilot was actually, he said, was very sh ashamed. He's like, I don't know. I just have to follow the rules. You know, if the complaint is made, I have to escort you off. I don't see any difference between the way you're wearing it and the way I'm wearing it, but this is just what we have to do. So instead of making a fuss about it, he and his wife just got off the plane. They didn't quite understand why. You know, they had all these things. Well, maybe we'll sue the airlines and we'll, we'll raise a stink on all our social media accounts and get, you know, all this. They had to go get a hotel and stay overnight and rent a car and go to another airport and book a plane from another airline because that airline wouldn't let them book any other flights until the investigation was over. So they did all that. And so when they came to the other airport and they're standing in line to get tickets, they're at the counter. The guy in front of them starts having, some older gentleman starts having an episode. And he starts saying weird things and doing weird things and acting all of a sudden herky-jerky and you don't know what's going on. It's really kind of odd. And he just collapses. And so he has medical background. He's been trained in CPR and all these other things. He immediately kneels down and checks the guy's pulse and he doesn't have one and checks the guy's breath and the guy's not breathing. He just fell over dead in that sense. So he immediately, with the help of another security agent who was right there, starts CPR on the guy, and medics are called, and they do CPR on the guy until medics get there, and then they help and assist the medics, and praise the Lord, they resuscitated the guy, and he lived. What was meant for evil, God meant for good. Because had they not been kicked off that plane the day before for something stupid, he wouldn't have been there the next day to help resuscitate this guy who collapsed in front of him. It just so happens he had the training, he had the knowledge, he knew what to do and how to handle those situations. That's what I'm talking about, is that God redeems those moments. Those moments that we look at that we think are evil or bad or whatever. God redeems those moments. What was meant for evil, God means for good. So what do we do? We trust God. Right? We trust his direction because God's not going to fail and he's going to fulfill his promises. And no matter how seemingly impossible it may seem to us, like something, you know, I promise I'm going to bring your bones out of here. Well, okay, I'm going to be dead. I can't be for sure, but I'm going to trust you that you're going to do exactly as you say. Because our faith sees the promises of God fulfilled in Christ. And so for our love for God has to be greater than our fear of evil. Our love for God has to be greater than our fear of evil. Because we have a lot of evil Seemingly getting more and more, right? In the world that we live in today. So don't let fear rule your life. Let God rule it. Amen? Joshua 1.9 says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I have a coffee mug. It has that on it. That's how we should be. Strong and courageous. Not be frightened. Because it's in God's hands. And no matter what's thrown at you, no matter what you go through, whether it be big or small, what you should be able to see, every Christian should be able to see the hand of God in their life. You should, you should know that no matter what evil man brings against you, no matter what trials you're facing, no matter the valleys, no matter the dark days, no matter, like I said, no matter how big or small the issues are, God can and will use it for good, for his glory. That's what God's going to do. And we cannot forget that. When we forget that, 
is when we're shaken, when we're tossed back and forth, right? When our foundation goes out from underneath us because we forget that God's going to redeem them because God has promised he's going to redeem you and the world. So don't forget that. What was meant for evil, God meant for good. Even the times that we live in today, even we're watching the stories of all this evil unfold in front of us. Pedophilia and all these things that are going on. Child trafficking, which we don't even hear about in the news because they won't discuss it. That's going on in the world around us. And even the stuff that they will discuss, which is just crazy and asinine. And you're just like, I can't believe I just saw that on the news. Ridiculous. What they meant for evil, God means for good. He's going to redeem it. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that you just continue to speak this into our hearts, that we can continue to apply this to our lives daily so that we understand that no matter what's thrown at us, no matter what trials we're going through, big or small, we know that whatever was meant for evil, God means for good. God has a plan. He's working out that plan, and we're in it. We're in the midst of everything that he's doing. The Bible tells us exactly what's going to happen and what it looks like. It also tells us that we are secure in his hands, that nothing will separate us from the love of God if we are in Christ Jesus. So I pray, Lord, that we just continue to point people to Christ Jesus where their hope is so that they will too be secure, so that they will no longer be fearful and afraid, no longer be doubting God's promises or his salvation. That they will be able to accept the forgiveness that comes through Christ. I thank you for this, Lord. I pray that we can just continue to love others as you love us. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.